This is Childhood Heroes, and I'm Laura Wyatt-Smith. This podcast explores the big issues affecting modern childhood through conversations with inspiring subject experts. And we ask the question, is childhood today better or worse than a generation ago? Today's topic was raised by every single guest, regardless of their area of expertise, whether that be growing up gay or bullying or fatherhood or whatever else, all of the experts talked about their concerns with what is happening to freedom for our children and access to the outdoors. So I absolutely love speaking to Kath about this topic. We spoke for way longer than intended and I've even had to make this into a two-parter because I just didn't want to cut out the amazing expert insights which she offered. This is not a parenting podcast, but I must say I have reflected really deeply on my own parenting as a result of this conversation with Kath. And I wonder whether you will as well. Kath is a leading figure in the UK um, on children's play and the outdoors. She's been director of Play England, and yet there is an organisation dedicated just to play in the UK. She's been a teacher, she's run a nursery school, and now she advises primary schools on helping them to make sure that their outdoor play offer is as good as it can be. And she does that through the OPAL programme. Kath's also founded Outdoor People, which is her own social enterprise, and they're on a mission to support the 20% of young Londoners who don't access a green space more than once a month. So enjoy, and don't forget to tune back in for part two when there's even more. Kath, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Laura. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I've got to be honest, I am mega excited about this episode. Um, I've always personally been interested in the outdoors and childhood and young people. And I, I feel like it's just such an important thing inherently. But what really has got my interest is through the first series of Childhood Heroes, every single guest that I spoke to highlighted the same thing. Um, And that was their concern around young people and the outdoors and specifically freedom. So I would ask them the question based upon your subject area alone, is childhood improving? And quite often the answer was yes, or, or at least a mixed response. But generally, yes, it's improving this one area. And then would come the caveat. And they'd say, but, you know, actually on a personal level, I'm, I'm really concerned about about the outdoors, about freedom, about unstructured play. And then they would tell me anecdotes about about their life. And in particular, I think of Lauren Seeger-Smith talking about her expertise was bullying. And, and she retold stories of playing knockdown ginger you know, yeah. on the street and just the being outdoors all day. And, and it really got me thinking because from my personal perspective I was raised in um, at the end of a little cul-de-sac which was full of small terraced houses and in those houses were a number of young families and it it was really an everyday occurrence I'm pretty sure this is this is not nostalgia and my mom would say the same we would come home from school drop off our bags shove some food in our face and shout I'm playing out run back outside probably pulling on our skates roller skates or maybe grabbing a bike in the process and when we turned up outside 
sitting out the front of our house. If there were no children there at that time, and they normally was, but if there weren't, within five minutes, kids would appear because they'd spot you and they'd just come out and you'd just play. And that's how we spent our time. And of course we did watch TV and of, of course we played computer games. Um, but it was in balance and, and playing outdoors. That's my predominant memory. And my brothers say the same and my parents say the same. So I, I feel like that was a big part of my life. But I've always been curious well, I've always perhaps assumed that maybe I was just really lucky um, that we, you know, we, we, we lived in a safe street. The cars that entered knew that it was just families uh, really that lived there. They wouldn't plow down the street. And, and I guess we were overlooked because there were sort of, like I say, small terrace houses, a lot of people looking down on you and they were friendly, you know, friendly neighbours and families. So yeah. I guess my parents weren't worried about stranger danger to that extent. So we just had a lot of freedom and, and, and unstructured playtime. We didn't have a lot of toys because yeah. we didn't really need them. We just made stuff, you know, um, from junk, from the garage or from whatever, you know. Yeah. And and so I, I've always been really curious because I, I know not everybody had an upbringing quite like that, but, but having spoken to all these other guests and them all growing up in different circumstances, whether it be central London or yeah. other, you know, rural or urban, they all stated they had a lot more freedom and a lot less structure to their lives. And and you, Kath, I know, uh, you know, I, I knew you was director of Play England and, and now you're CEO of Outdoor People and a mentor for the Opal Primary Project um, programme and and really essentially a bit of an authority on this subject. So I, I've been so excited to get you on. <laughs> and just to like, what are the facts about this? Yeah, how, how much of this is nostalgia? How much of this is an actual trend? But yeah. be, before I, I really ask you to jump into that... <laughs> Because oh, I can't, you can tell I can't wait to get going. Um, but before we get into that, um, could you just give us a flavour of what was your own personal childhood like? And I ask all the guests, if you had a childhood hero, however silly or sincere, if you had one, who, who, who was that? Absolutely. As a kid, I loved Anne of Green Gables. I was like, I love the books. And then I wanted to be just like her, like to be brave and bold and get outdoors all the time and make sure that children, wherever they are, wherever they're from, whoever is with them, that we all make a world where those kids can be loved and valued and respected. Be outdoors and use really long words. <laughs> Why not? Why not? And my childhood was similar to yours, growing up on an, uh, an estate in Liverpool, like a, a nice estate in Liverpool next to a primary school. Um, we had a garden with a willow tree and I loved climbing to the top of that willow tree and reading my book. Um, I, at home in Liverpool, we were, I lost the accent really early. I moved <laughs> at 11. Um, so we, we would play out, absolutely play outside straight away after school. I, all I remember from that period of time when we were in Liverpool was playing outdoors with my mates, roller skates, exploring the um, building sites of the new estate <laughs> around us being built up. It was all. And then my dad got a job in Iraq, in Baghdad. Wow. And we would spend every summer, Easter, most Christmases in Iraq, in Baghdad on a, um, a compound that was quite big. You could climb up on the roof and there was orange trees. Um, and we got to go to Babylon and Nineveh and Ur and all Whoa. these places. It was, <laughs> was mind-blowing, but we weren't allowed to play outside and there were no other children. Mm. So we were there for like long, like long periods, like six, eight weeks. Um, and 
because there was no problem about taking kids out of school those right. days. And um, so we'd be there for the, because my mom was a university lecturer. So we'd go out there and like for six, eight weeks at a time and be enclosed and then come back and be completely feral and then go back to Iraq <laughs> again and be completely enclosed. And oh, I wow. think that's partly why I'm so aware of children's freedom and this yeah. idea of freedom. You know, it didn't matter where people were in the 70s. They had freedom to play. But it wasn't just the 70s. And I was thinking about this in, in when I was thinking about this about this podcast, you know, thinking about the changes in childhood from when we were children to now. That's almost the wrong question. We have spent a hundred million years as a species coming up with the perfect way to transform squalling infants into neuroplastic, functioning, emotionally literate adults who can form new family units that are safe and secure and, uh, um, and, and pass on the key knowledge and the key competencies and the key abilities to the, the offspring. And that mechanism is play. It's, it's, it's not something else. You don't learn to be an emotionally literate, um, functioning adult by reading a book. You can improve on yourself. You can learn new techniques. And you can certainly learn a lot of techniques to undo the, the, the damage done before by reading books. But that's not as a, you know, a three-year-old in their play is not learning to be an engineer or a mathematician or a shop worker or a factory person or a driver. They're learning to be a brilliant three-year-old. They're, they're just having a good time. And through that space, they're learning where are the ends of my fingers? Um, how much power do I have within a social dynamic situation? Mm. So when I start insets in schools or, or, or workshops with groups of people or podcasts like this, and I say, just think about how you played as a child. Maybe we should also think, how did your parents play? Your grandparents, your great-grandparents. When people he speak about like, what's changed in childhood, they kind of go, were people mental and crazy in the 70s and 80s for letting their kids play outside? <laughs> yeah. mm. And then, But then think about it. The attitude towards children was the same in the 70s and 80s as it was in the 50s, the 60s, the 30s, the 1850s, the 1740s. I mean, you know, some aspects massively improved. You know, child labor is not a thing. In, right. the, in the way it was, um, there's you know, child health so much better. We have, we care about children's mental health and well-being and their safety in a way that previous generations just didn't, weren't mm. thinking about it. When is it, it Hugh Cunningham's book on the history of childhood? He notes in the last chapter that it is only since the sort of 70s that parents have been more scared of external dangers like strangers and cars than they have mm -hmm. of childhood diseases yet things have changed a lot but childhood you know children are still the same children are biological beings that have an innate biological drive to perform behaviors and act in ways that they always have done. They've, stayed, same, they've got the same kind of innate urges. 
and that urge is to roller skate and to make a <laughs> den. And actually, making dens is a really interesting one. We should come back to that. That is an, it's, it's, there are certain things that children do that are biologically the same, whether they're growing up in Ilian Jaya in the, the jungles of, 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 of islands off in Indonesia, or they're growing up in a hamlet in Scotland, or they're growing up in Hackney. They all want to make dens. They all want to make dens. They all want to right. make dens. It's a <laughs> biological process that you see in every single child mm. everywhere. They want to make little tiny dens, fairy houses. They want to make big dens. They want to, if, and if you let them just get on with it as a group, mm. they will go from making small um, spaces to places that they can hide and protect themselves in to creating entire villages with ecosystems, uh, like it, it economic ecosystems and mm. cultures of all of their own they will mm. work through all of that in their play which is just beautiful to watch you mentioned a couple of fears that we have nowadays which we had less of a generation plus ago you talked about cars and you talked about stranger danger and i think a lot of parents listening to this their first thoughts would be like yeah but i literally cannot let my child play out on the street i would say i'm one of those people right now i have a, a nearly five-year-old and a nearly eight-year-old and I live on a busy main road and the cars fly by. They shouldn't. It should be 20, 30 miles per hour. They, some of them fly by at 70, you know. Yeah. And I think, oh, my word, could I trust my child not to run out after that ball that, that rolled into the ro road? You know, would they yeah. be safe? And I'm sure that there's a lot of parents out there who are so scared of that, as well as the whole stranger danger concept, that that's just like, I can't even relate to how we could achieve this. Yeah. What thoughts do you have around that subject? Um, too many. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're, they're two different topics, very different topics. Stranger yeah. danger, I tend to try and deal with quite quickly and say one of the best things I heard recently, a couple of years ago, um, at a healthy schools conference in London and the head of safeguarding from Ofsted stood up and went, teachers, we should be teaching our children to make sure they say, if you are in danger, tell a stranger. Um, that's not to say that, you know, I, I was looking after my, my friend's nine-year-old um, for the last few days, and yesterday he came along to my shop and um, uh, his mum couldn't pick him up straight away, and he's nine and very responsible and I rang his mom and, he, and I said, he says he can walk home by himself. Is that right? And she's like, well, if you can see him across the busy road, Mayor Street, um, then yeah, you can. Was my heart in my mouth when I was watching him going off? Yeah, a little bit. I don't know him well enough. But um, he was brilliant. And he was so proud of himself when he got home. And mm, he walked, achievement. Yeah, and he walked my dog. And I was very scared he would let go of my my ten month old puppy. Don't tell my husband that. So who who are you more nervous for? Not sure. <laughs> don't say that. Don't declare that on this podcast. I don't want that. Exactly. <laughs> that, exactly. that on my conscience. Oh. Yeah, get you in trouble. Yeah. One of the things when I was at Plainland, we did a, a survey of adults and their feelings around such strangers. And one of the things that really upset all of us, was 50% of men responding to that survey said they would not help a crying three-year-old because they're scared mm. of what people might say. Yeah, And that's yeah. a very British thing. It's a very thing that's right. been pushed through our British media. It is not how people mm. would feel in 
Germany or Sweden or Indonesia or China or Chile or Peru. It's it's a very British, American, Australian fear, mm. this, because and many different reasons. But that's, so that's, so stranger danger is, is, is one thing that we're, it's tied up with so many different things. So with that on, on stranger danger, you'd be saying to people, it's essentially it's a false fear, you know, statistically, or, or you'd be saying you're, you're, it's blown out of all proportion, just don't worry about it. It's a thing, there's, there's things there around trusting your own children. Mm-hmm. It's about trusting the children that we work with, that we support, that are, belong to our family units. Um, trusting our neighbourhood and our community. Where children are growing up in, and many still are, in communities where lots of people play out all the time, there are lots of eyes around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Action for Children did a report with Res Publica a few years ago. I had the um, great honour of being part of uh, where they were looking at how do we build safer neighbourhoods where children are less likely to have to face the, the dangers that we know around safeguarding. And it's if they're all playing outside, there's lots of eyes on the streets or mm. watching each other mm. who will notice if little Johnny suddenly isn't as well cared for as he's been in the past. Who will notice if there's somebody hanging around that's a problem. Um, we, as a society, have gone so far the other way. You know, my friend texted me uh, like a couple of years ago, I remember her saying, uh, my daughter's school, my daughter's school has just WhatsApped all parents saying, watch out, there's a man in a white van opposite the school. And I'm just like, do people not realise how problematic that is? That man in the white van, yeah, of course, there is an infinitesimal chance that that man in the white van is, is problematic. There's much greater chance that man is maybe he's a a refugee and he hasn't seen his own children for five years maybe he's a granddad and he just likes the sound of kids don't we all like the sound of kids Mm. playing in the background Mm. when we stop and have our lunch Mm. maybe his godchildren are at the school has anybody Mm. actually stopped and asked them almost certainly not um it's people are so scared that something bad might happen that people act first it's like worst first thinking it's worst Mm -hmm. first thinking Mm -hmm. that just and we'll keep coming back to this because it's the same on accidents it's the same on um just trust on every level people think that other people have got the worst in mind for their children Mm -hmm. but actually as a society mostly people are good mostly Mm -hmm. people are lovely um children do need to be taught and to learn for themselves how to protect themselves So Mm -hmm. a child who feels confident to be able to put on the right face, to be able to walk in a confident manner, um, to walk themselves home from school, to walk to the park, to walk to a shop, that child has built the skills up as a seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old to be able to deal with the dangers of the internet. And I cannot believe that so many people will say, no, my child cannot... um, go to the park by themselves at the age of 10 with two or three of their mates. But they can have this unlocked iPad that is mm-hmm. open to the universe. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that, that doesn't compute in my head that that's, that's a thing that you do. It's, 
you know, we as a society, it's wonderful that we now protect our children from things that we didn't know. You know, I wrote to Jimmy Savile when I was a kid. I know, wanted yeah. Jim will fix it. And yeah. oh my gosh, doesn't that make us all cringe? But that yeah. was one thing. One man, yeah. One man doing one terrible thing that shouldn't stop every child mm. having the opportunity to walk themselves to and from school. So in Switzerland, almost all schools require that children walk themselves to and from school from the age of seven without their grown-ups. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, and it's not unusual. Most, like, my, like many countries do this, but Switzerland, my friends, ha- uh, my best friend from school, her kids started school, and she rang me up. She's like, Kath, you won't believe this. I'm sending you the policy on walk to school. And it was a two-page policy that every parent got saying, if your child is seen being dropped off in a car where it hasn't previously been agreed by the school for a special occasion, then every parent will get a letter reminding them of this policy, that children are not allowed to come into school by car. They, are, they must walk or cycle to school with their friends. Because, and then it like listed all the research, because they will build um, a sense of ownership of their own environment. It will help them develop friendships. It will help them develop a better awareness of road safety. It will give them the confidence that they need to be good, um, the confidence that they, they need to just for, for life. Um, it will help them in their spatial awareness. It will make sure that by the time they come to school, they've got rid of the fidgets and they're ready to sit down and learn. So, and it's not just in Switzerland. In, in Berlin, they have a um, in Berlin they have a a policy where every child sort of I think it's it's, it's age of six they start school and the children wear a uh, uh, they all wear like bright coloured beanie hat. I think they're all yeah. red. So that everybody right. can see that all these six-year-olds are just starting school and everybody Aww. will clap and they'll Aww. beat their horns and they'll go, way to go, well done. <laughs> and everybody gives an extra little lookout for these small humans. And this has two big purposes. One, those small humans then know that lots of people are friendly and looking out for them and that they will help them if they get lost or they don't know where to go. Wow. Secondly, their parents get over the fear of allowing their kids to go to school without them quickly. It's like pulling mm. a plaster. Mm, so just do it. Just do it. It's like, you know, that awful thing. I mean, I don't have kids, but I've worked with lots of kids. I've got lots of nieces and nephews. So there are times when I talk about all of this and I'm like going, I know the fear I feel <laughs> when I allow my nieces and nephews to do this. And I'm sitting here going, this is what the way the world should be. But you know your child. You know when you can trust them. But also when you're emotionally invested in one small human, it can be really hard to let them go into nursery. That feeling of total devastation when they start uh, a new school and they're, they're bigger and they're no longer your little baby. And that first day of letting them walk to school by themselves, that's a big moment of trust. But one of the things, when I first set up Outdoor People back in 2014, um, I got a, a small grant from Hackney Council uh, to research um, um, risk-taking behaviours and play and how it impacted on healthy decision-making. Um, and one of the things we looked at was trust. You know, mm-hmm. do you, does your child feel trusted? Do mm-hmm. I feel trusted as a human being when I am eight? 10, 12, because 
if I don't feel trustworthy by the age of 10, that the grown-ups that I, yeah. I love and respect, if they don't respect me enough to know that I'm not stupid enough to jump in a, a, in a canal or go off with uh, a stranger or yeah. run into the road or jump off a cliff, if they don't yeah. trust me, then to heck with it. I'm going to like behave mm. really untrustworthy. And mm-hmm. it really, I did one focus group with um, a condom distribution company in, in Hackney uh, called Come Correct, who do amazing work. Um, and That's I did a, yeah. an impressive name. <laughs> Come Correct. I want to hear Hackney. where this is going. Yeah, carry on. <laughs> so, and I, I did a focus group where they'd done a session on, you know, um, um, sexual health and, and teenagers. And I did a focus group with all the health professionals afterwards saying, what permissions do you allow your kids? And one of the participants said, I won't let my 14-year-old daughter go to the park or go to the shops with her friends, but I will let her bring her boyfriend home and sleep in her bedroom. Okay. And that is not, she's by no means the only person who responded to my survey to say that that was the case. It's, and that's that's a decision in their family and, But for me, I want to see a world where children can climb a tree, can ride a bike, can skate far too fast, can be trusted to run around and do dangerous things as 8, 9, 10, 11-year-olds so that when the hormones hit and when they are faced with difficult decisions at the age of 13, 14, where it's far harder to make you know to make like the, the shades of gray decisions that they mm-hmm. feel that they are trusted human beings that can make difficult decisions and moral judgments for themselves I've, that that's such a helpful analogy to understand how such risk-taking behaviors translate to older young people and young adulthood could we explore that a bit more? So what what specifically is it and how do they learn? Is it about sort of trusting your own instinct, trusting your own boundaries, you know, and building confidence in yourself and your own decisions? Is, is, it, is that what we're talking about here or something else? The children need not only to develop those physical skills, it's the emotional skills. It's the capabilities that will help them negotiate the emotional landscape of being a complicated eight-year-old, of being a 13-year-old who has to deal with the, their first rejection when they're asked if uh, they're asking somebody out on a date, is dealing with loss, of coping with anger. You know, when you are dealing with the emotions, I mean, I don't know about you, one of the things about lockdown was that we all learned quite how intense our emotions are especially mm. when we are uh, physically kept apart from other human beings. Well, children are feeling those emotions much more intensely. They have to be able to play through intense happiness, intense sadness, intense anger, fright, fear, um, uh, joy. And all of those emotions, if they can play through them, by taking risks, physical, emotional, social, then they learn how to deal with it. They learn what kind of human being they are. 
And mm. if they don't do it, you know, they might get all the A-levels in the world, but they're not going to be able to function in a team. They're not going to be able to form a, a close, loving relationship to be able to support the next generation of humans. And they're just not going to have as much fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, what you say really, um, I hope this comes across right, but reminds me really of essentially nature documentaries oh, yeah. where you've got, you know, you see young cubs of whatever species playing, they're play fighting, essentially what it seems to me that you're describing is that they are dress rehearsing, they are role-playing adult scenarios and they're testing their boundaries, they are having, not minor, because I don't want to undermine it, but they're, they're, they're having mini stresses, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're learning to cope with failure, they're learning to cope with rejection or injury or emotional physical pain potentially yeah. or fear yeah. they're learning these things they're having little injections and doses of that so that they know what that feels like yeah. and how to come back from that how to process that so yeah. that when that happens in a more serious scenario later down the line they've got some coping strategies in place for how they're going to tackle that they're not completely overwhelmed yeah. that, and that is it the only thing i pick up on that is the learning to be adults Seven-year-olds are learning to be great seven-year-olds. Right. Twelve-year-olds are learning to be great twelve-year-olds. They may well be building a foundation on which they develop um, to to be great um, adults. But that's not what they're doing. So if you think Mm -hmm. back to, we we, we clearly got a shared love of roller skating when we were eight, ten years old. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm still plucking up the courage to pick it up again now. (laughs) Me too. I keep looking. There's there's some really good roller skate companies. I keep looking at their roller skates and going, and then I'm looking outside and going, where would I do that? But yeah, so, (laughs) but that, that love of roller skating when I was seven, eight, nine, ten, I wasn't roller skating in order to develop great proprioception as an adult. You know, <laughs> fair point. Yeah, I was roller skating because it was really good fun. Because it was cool. Yeah, yeah it's fun. But it definitely did give me. It, it it meant that I learned not to cry when you fell over and got a, got a. I mean, might cry, but it was like it's over. Yeah. No, have you heard of snowplow parenting? Of what parenting? Snowplow. No. Helicopter is where people kind of like hover yeah. over the children. Ready to dive in and rescue, right? Yeah, never giving them chance to fail. Yeah. Yeah. The snowplow is like making sure that you get rid of any dangers before they even get to the child. You know, okay. This is, okay. you know, the parents who... De-risking an environment so completely there's never a chance to yeah. fail or get hurt, right? Yeah. Okay, snowplow, that's a new one. <laughs> there's a lot of fear that if I allow my child to be feral, to be outdoors, to be a bit wild, I will get blamed. 20% of London's kids get to a green space less than once a month. Um, About 20% go every day. So it's not about Mm. that this Mm. is a blanket thing around childhood. You know, it's not. Like everybody has different experiences. But about 20% go to a green space less than once a month. And if you unpack that... There's a whole load of kids there who are not developing a relationship with nature. They're not developing a a love of a particular tree. There's that tree that was your childhood tree. And that relationship... I remember it well. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I do. Yeah. In the park. Yeah. 
Go back. Is it still there? It's still there. Yeah. We used to climb it in our roller skates. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And knowing that that tree is still there will ground you in a way Mm. that maybe you don't even appreciate Mm. fully Mm. until you look back and you go, this is my land. This is where I belong. You know the phrase kith and kin? Mm -hmm. So kin is your extended family. Well, kith apparently is the old word for extended place. Kith is the place where I stand here and I know I belong. I feel that sense of deep rootedness in the here, the space. The mysteries of the underneath the bushes and the behind the hedge and that little space that I can get through and there's another little world through there. This is all my place. And we still feel it as adults. You know, when I Mm. cycle into London fields, I'm like, I'm home. Well, as a child, you know, my kith was the extent of my housing estate. And like, and I had a roaming mm. range of about uh, two miles, probably as an eight, ten-year-old. Um, mm-hmm. Beyond that, I knew I'd have to sort of tell somebody I was going there. But up to that space, that was my space, and I could just go, mm. right, see you later. And if I got into trouble, somebody would help me and get me home. Never happened. In 1970, we were about... Uh, 80% of seven-year-olds could walk themselves to school. By 1990, it was down to 20%. By 2010, it was down to less than 10% in England. And then you compare that to Germany, where it's still 80%. Mm. And in Switzerland, Mm. where it's almost 100% because they require Mm. them to do so. And Mm. and there's a bit of a kind of so what about that? Well, what is it that's changed? You know, it, it makes... It makes lives easier if, if parents can just drop their kids off at school in the car and they've gone mm. to work, surely. Mm-hmm. But what have children lost from that? They've lost that feeling of independence that I can, I can be responsible for moving myself from here to my place of being for the day. They've lost that time where they can have a chat with their friends. Very importantly, they've lost a time where they can just chill out. Because I don't know about you, but yeah. if I get up yeah. in the morning... And I eat something inappropriate, like a, a croissant or a like, you know, a bowl of cereal. And maybe I turn the radio on. I'm hearing about fires in Australia and terrible things in Afghanistan. Mm. And I have maybe a little argument with my husband about something stupid and who didn't do the washing up. If I then open up the laptop and start an eating, mm. I am not bringing my best self to work. Yeah. If I take 20 minutes to go and walk with a friend or with a dog or just by myself and my thoughts, then I bring my best self. If a child is coming to school, mum and dad have had a bit of a spat, they've not had a chance to get rid of that stress, Mm. or just Mm. make a space between home and school, then how are they bringing their best selves to school? We're taking a break here at the end of part one, but please continue listening to part two to find out more around how giving children responsibility helps their confidence, how parents have literally less time than ever before, the benefits of camping, dealing with boredom as a parent, and the importance of play breaks in school.